The EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Future Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I am Sandra Porcar, a visiting researcher at the VU Center for the Study of Europe, and today, February 27, I am with Jose Maria Beneito, a professor of European Law and Politics, International Relations and International Law, and the director of the Institute for European Studies in Madrid. Besides being an academic, he is also an international lawyer, a politician, and a writer, and he has published extensively on several topics like the EU constitutional development, EU foreign policy, political theory, global governance, international organizations, and human rights. One of the specific goals of the project um, is to explore the prospects for democratic politics in the aftermath of the financial crisis after the Brexit, Trump, etc. Um, so, in your opinion, what is the future that is emerging now in Europe? Well, as we all know, um, Europe has been going through a number of different crises in the recent in recent years. Um, it started certainly with the uh, financial. Um, crisis, which is now still ongoing, when we see um, the negotiations uh, taking place with uh, Greece, uh, and then um, it went, I, I think, into a larger, uh, you know, broader um, uh, situation in which uh, there was a, an increasing sense of lack of uh, legitimacy of the European project. Um, disconnected you know the the monetary and financial crisis and the increasing political and legitimacy crisis with um, the refugee search and the emergence and a consolidation of uh, populist movements uh, throughout Europe all this uh, is a challenge and an opportunity uh, to review um, the need of a closer uh, relationship between the European institutions and the citizens. I think that uh, the sense of citizens that elites or the establishment uh, have not been listening to their concerns uh, has to be addressed. Um, it's also true that the institutions have uh, got an aura of uh, technocracy and sometimes Uh, decisions need to be politicized and they need to be taken in a context of um, more understanding of the needs of the citizens and it's also true that the uh, monetary and economic crisis uh, has increased the uh, levels of inequality throughout Europe. So citizens um, are asking um, European politicians and the European institutions to um, take into account what they are expressing in different ways. Um, it does not mean certainly that we acquiesces, acquiesce with, um, with the populist demands, uh, which are certainly um, you know, very often not respectful of, of the rule of law, but it uh, means that we listen to the citizens and we, and we try 
uh, from the institutions and from the governments to address the specific needs that they are voicing. How, how can we bridge uh, this gap between citizens and institutions? <laughs> well, there are many ways um, in order to do that. <clears throat> I think that there is a need for, as I was um, implying, um, a further development of the institutional structure as one which um, is not just a replica of a you know, machinery of a big bureaucracy, but it's also uh, connected and responds to um, political needs, uh, which, it, which takes into account uh, national parliaments, uh, which also um, answers, you know, to um, all the uh, political um, uh, demands that citizens are expressing. Um, so I think that one way is going forward into a uh, institutional structure which is uh, more keen to a um, system of checks and balances in which you have real political uh, expression of the demands of the citizens. Um, the other way is by um, arguing and expressing, you know, from the European institutions is very, um, it is not true that all citizens are now um, in an anti-European or necessarily Europhobic uh, mood. There are many citizens in Europe who would like to have more Europe and who would like to have a clearer response from the side of the um, leaders responsible in different institutions and governments in terms of a further vision for Europe and a further um, commitment to the goals and values of the European Union. Uh, many citizens will still think that uh, the European Union has been uh, indeed uh, you know, the guarantor of stability, prosperity, uh, peace, and also um, the rule of law, human rights uh, throughout the continent for many years. And they would like to have from the leaders also, I think, a clearer response uh, addressing uh, ser the search of populist movements, um, the expression of uh, anti-European uh, sentiments. Um, all what has emerged in recent months is really some kind of further development and still, you know, the commitments are a bit vague in the realm of uh, defense and security policy. But I think that there are many other areas which should be uh, tackled uh, from the institutions and from the governments together with the European institutions. We cannot just uh, rely on a uh, structure and a system which is uh, uh, de uh, deviating towards something intergovernmental. Uh, the essence and the inherent value of the European project is that, is that it is a supranational project and uh, a project which uh, rests on both the governments and the institutions. And I think that there is a lack of uh, uh, interconnection, of uh, you know, uh, channeling uh, citizens' concerns through uh, national uh, countries 
uh, to the European institutions and then uh, working together in order to solve the real problems that are out there. We have witnessed that with, uh, refugee, with the refugee crisis. Um, uh, it, is, it is obvious that it is needed uh, a more uh, and closer, you know, stronger and closer commitment of the European institutions in this regard. Uh, national uh, governments alone are not able to solve the problem. But at the same time, there has been there a lack of um, coherent response from the side of the governments. Uh, this lack of uh, this cacophonia, which we have heard from the different national governments in terms of the uh, managing of the uh, refugee crisis. Uh, and I think that the European institutions there should have played more a role of intermediary, as you know, as it's the role that it is uh, their own. Um, you've mentioned before about the populism that is rising in Europe. Um, wh why is, uh, in light of the financial and economic crisis, Europe like lighting up this right-wing and uh, extremism uh, political parties in Europe? Yes, I think that there are <coughs> different reasons, different causes for the uh, search of populism. Uh, first one, cer uh, certainly the uh, economic crisis and the uh, consequences of the economic crisis, which have, uh, you know, brought uh, more inequality and uh, a sense that the um, uh, technological change and the rapid uh, development of um, financial services and uh, the erosion of the middle classes as a consequence of the monetary and financial crisis, uh, you know, this has uh, certainly affected uh, uh, large segments of the population and there is internal devaluation, an internal devaluation which has taken place in different countries and which uh, has affected uh, the um, uh, capacity, economic capacity of, uh, uh, of voters and of citizens. No? So this is the, the economic and monetary crisis is certainly one of the main reasons. But there is also a cultural, a cultural uh, underlying trend which has not, uh, I think, sufficiently analyzed and which uh, has to do with a, the, the perceived uh, sentiment that uh, the European integration project and also um, the solutions given to the crisis and particularly the globalization uh, process um, have left the individual in in an environment of anonymity, of um, abandonment, um, and there is a, a strong uh, sentiment, a strong need for uh, rerouting, for having a uh, embeddedness in culture, in history, in communities, in communities which are um, giving a certain security uh, and and guaranteeing, you know, the prosperity of uh, of the people. So this is um, the fear uh, which has emerged um, in front of the other, in front of uh, the Muslims, in front of the refugees, 
Um, and this is something that which has been then um, appropriated in a sometimes very perverse manner by the populist uh, uh, parties, um, which have made of these uh, sentiments, which are in a sense um, legit legitimate, uh, you know, the need for uh, roots, uh, for culture, for, for cultural and historical background, for um, being a part of a historical cultural uh, community which has developed in an organic way, um, this does not mean necessarily uh, that it uh, brings um, a kind of a politics based on the idea of uh, friend and enemy a politics of exclusion, a politics in which you need to radicalize your own position um, because this is mobilizing. So populists um, rely on all these, you know, sentiments, um, the um, loss of uh, trust and confidence of uh, parts of the population on the expert culture, um, the loss of confidence on elites and on the establishment uh, as a consequence of the financial uh, crisis um, and also the loss on traditional politics. Uh, we see that in the crisis of the social democratic parties all over Europe, um, which has brought that uh, many workers, traditional voters of social democratic parties have uh, gone uh, to uh, the populist parties and are voting for populist parties in France, uh, you know, in the different in, in the Netherlands, in the Scandinavian parties, even in Austria and so on. So we face indeed, you know, a year which is complicated in terms of the elections um, which are going to take place. First in the Netherlands, where it is most likely that Gert Wilders is going to have um, the lead in the um, electoral results. Uh, most likely he's not going to be able to uh, form a government, but uh, he will certainly influence the outcome and the political future of the Netherlands. And this is a party which um, very much rests on the assumption that there is a civilizational war between uh, the so-called Judeo-Christian culture and uh, the Muslim world and which uh, completely rejects the idea of multiculturalism and uh, integration of uh, particularly uh, Muslim citizens into, into the uh, Dutch uh, society. So this is a challenge certainly for uh, democratic parties to um, address the issues which are behind these populist uh, surges and explain to the citizens that it is possible to have societies which are diverse, but at the same time integrated. Uh, this, I think, very important point. And then we'll have the very decisive elections in France, in which uh, Marine Le Pen uh, also uh, leads at this moment the polls. Um, I expect that at the end, you know, reasonableness and, 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 and political rationality will prevail, and, and there will be in the second round, a candidate which is uh, backed by all the Republican uh, parties and which, uh, uh, again, you know, make, uh, pos make possible that um, 
Marine Le Pen is not going to be the president of France. But the uh, need to address what is being um, voiced here and you know and demanded by uh, from the citizens uh, will continue. Uh, it's going to be the same, uh, you know, in other eventual elections, which c could be in Austria, uh, legislative elections, if uh, uh, this is the case. It's still a question mark. Nobody wants elections in Austria, but it could, it could happen. But it is, uh, you know, the, the, the situation of this idea no, of uh, homogeneity of the people, no, the uh, the, the, the pure people, no? the true Finns, the true Swiss, the true um, uh, Swedes, and so on, which want to have an exclusionary line um, and which, uh, in a very fictional way, portray themselves as the only um, moral representation of the uh, sovereignty of the people. Uh, I think this is something which needs to be uh, addressed in, in, in with through arguments, through pedagogical means, um, in a very direct way, because uh, you know the the challenge is there, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Could you please elaborate a little bit more on uh, which would be your advice to social democratic parties to address these rates of uh, extreme right wing populism in Europe? Yes. I think not only for social democratic parties, for all democratic parties, mm -hmm. there is a need to um, devise, you know, a strategic and, and tactical response to um, the uh, populist parties. And I think that there are four methods which have been tested, and each one of them has advantages and disadvantages, and it depends very much on the concrete situation, how do you should you should react. Um, I think one method, which is the one which I am advocate, advocating throughout the interview, is certainly the need for explaining, you know, arguing, not um, delegitimizing the uh, strength of political rationality. I think that uh, democratic parties have to continue being confident that um, uh, you know, a, a response based on the better arguments uh, will prevail. Because if we, um, at the end, disbelieve the capacity of uh, political rationality and rational argumentation uh, to prevail over sentiments, over um, confrontational um, rhetoric, uh, you know, a rhetoric which very often use negativity uh, as a way uh, to express itself, uh, which uses exclusion, uh, which uses uh, the um, lash of the media for uh, the uh, that what is uh, you know uh, abnormal or in a sense gets out of of the normal discourse. Uh, uh, we cannot you know fall into that because I think then we would just give the terrain. And the territory to uh, to the populist rhetoric, but there are also other tactical means. Of course, the first one, which sometimes can be counterproductive, is the sanitization, the cordon sanitaire, you know, extending. Uh, this has been the case with the so-called at the time Flamse block in in uh, Belgium, uh, which uh, you know prevented uh, them for uh, coming to power. 
or now, you know, this is also the, the instrument which is going to be used in France against uh, Marine Le Pen, no? and sometimes this is going to be necessary, you know, that uh, the democratic parties um, come together and prevent uh, that, uh, you know, in, in particular situation, a populist party uh, gets uh, the uh, government. Um, but this is also counterproductive sometimes in the sense that it can give the argument to them that they are, you know, excluded, being excluded by, by the elites. So this has to be tested and used uh, in, in, in a, in a uh, diplomatic and uh, intelligent manner. You can also have uh, the other way, uh, which is uh, concession. Uh, and sometimes uh, I, you know, I am concerned because uh, you see how some democratic leaders think that by introducing, integrating part of the populist rhetoric in your own uh, political uh, manifestos, uh, this is going to be uh, a way of uh, luring uh, voters from the populists. Um, I don't think that this is a good strategy. I think that this contaminates uh, democratic discourse and this makes um, that uh, you know the arguments of the populists uh, um, are being brought forward. And the third uh, strategy, and sometimes it may be necessary is a you know clear confrontational stance uh, you need to say uh, without uh, of course violence but with a very clear um, uh, you know with strength that um, the populist parties may be uh, in contravention of the rule of law uh, they may be as it has been the case you know in Hungary and Poland put in question um, the uh, constitutional system. Mm, there is never, uh, you know, there is nowhere written that uh, plebiscites or referenda are necessarily more democratic than parliamentary elections. A, uh, a democracy, as the Council of Europe has uh, very clearly uh, made explicit once and again, is uh, the result of a, uh, different elements. Uh, you need to have elections, free elections. Uh, you need to have a system of uh, checks and balances. You need to have uh, the um, uh, prevalence of the rule of law. Uh, you need to have a constitutional system uh, which also protects uh, the rights of individuals and of minorities. I mean, it is much more structured and much more nuanced uh, you know, democratic system than just the will of uh, the majority. Um, the um, option, uh, the choice for majoritarian uh, institutions and tools um, is not necessarily more democratic than the reliance on uh, parliamentary elections, on parliamentary Argumentation on party, uh, you know, party political um, exchange of uh, political opinions. Uh, so we, I think, we need to relegitimize and to um, again bring confidence and trust 
to the means that we have to make that again, you know, political rationality uh, can be uh, continue uh, to be seen uh, by citizens as the way to uh, solve political conflict and not necessarily the exclusion or the politics of a friend and enemy. Um, looking forward like, to a future of different possibilities, um, how is the Europe in which you would like to live in? Mm -hmm. We need to create a, a Europe which continues to be open to others. We have been very successful and, and I think that we need to repeat that once and again in terms of opening up borders to the others, uh, not just within Europe. I mean, this has been the European integration uh, project has been a process of opening up and expanding borders, really. Uh, and this has been not a zero sum game, but a plus, a positive uh, sum game in which uh, everybody has really won and, and take uh, uh, and has taken benefit out of it. Um, so we need to continue uh, to have a Europe which is um, open, uh, which mm, do not create uh, unnecessary borders. Um, but at the same time, we have to manage mm, immigration. Uh, we have to manage the refugee search, um, which is not you know, if you look into the figures, of course, 2015 um, was a big surge there. But if you compare with uh, which have been in the past migration fluxes, migration movements in different countries, uh, this is not something really out completely out of uh, of the picture. So it is important to have this idea of an open uh, Europe. Then I think indeed that uh, it needs to be also a, a Europe which is uh, reflective of its past, not, uh, you know, its history, its culture, uh, the variety, the diversity, the richness of the different European cultures. Um, it's, it's a very important asset of the continent. Um, and we we cannot just construe a Europe which is um, basically relying on the integrative uh, power of economy and um, a, a institutional decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to go back and um, once again. Uh, be uh, aware that the founding fathers of Europe uh, were basically trying to achieve a political union which was based on the cultural and historical diversity of uh, Europe. Uh, if you, uh, and I am a big uh, fan of Salvador de Madariaga, uh, the Spanish writer, diplomat and uh, politician uh, who was so instrumental in the creation uh, of, you know, some of the most interesting institutions within the European uh, system, like the College d'Europe, or even the Council of Europe, uh, or uh, later on the University um, European Institute in Florence, um, and who has, you know, like him, 
others, you know, they fought for European unity in the interwar years and after the Second World War uh, with the goal of having a, um, a Europe united based on um, the plurality of the different cultures of Europe. Um, and they wanted, you know, they, they believe in the homo Europe Europeans, and they believe in the idea that, you know, Europe represents a certain achievement of human civilization in terms of culture, in terms of uh, the experience which history has brought to the European peoples. And I think that uh, very often um, the institutions and the uh, um, uh, process of integration has been too functional, you know, uh, has been, uh, in a sense, uh, technocratic. Um, and this has um, uh, created this big gap between the um, leaders in the institutions um, and the citizens. So a Europe which is open, a Europe which uh, takes account of its roots, its cultures, uh, its history, um, a Europe which also is uh, responsible towards uh, the other parts of the world. Uh, we have established through the process of European integration the largest um, uh, system of, you know, on the one hand trade interconnections, on the other hand also humanitarian aid, political cooperation in a large scale uh, throughout also now the European External Action Service. So this is a uh, experience of uh, cooperation uh, which should be uh, not only preserved but uh, fostered and developed uh, into the future. And this means that uh, Europe has to engage uh, in, in this uh, political and also civilizational dialogue with uh, the other cultures of the world. Um, it's not only political countries, I mean the political systems, the countries, the uh, uh, diplomatic uh, relationships. I think that we have to go a step forward and make possible also that there is, you know, a consideration of, uh, again, the intercultural elements uh, which should be considered here. I think it's important to, to realize that um, the 20th century was, as we all know, a terrible century in terms of loss of human lives and in terms of the destruction which was brought uh, along. The European institutions, the European project, the project of European unity has been an incredible experience in terms of uh, cooperation, supranationality, multilateralism, um, interrelationship between different countries. Mm, so this should be always be uh, well in the consciousness, in the collective awareness of uh, European citizens. And uh, so there is, there is a, a positive note here. This, you know, it's an optimistic note. Europe, uh, as again, another Spanish, I'm quoting to the Spanish writers and philosophers, but another Spanish philosopher, Ortega Gasset, uh, whom I, uh, you know, have devoted quite a bit of time and have written about him. Ortega was always optimistic about Europe, even if he uh, was witness to the two big uh, catastrophes of the 20th century. You know, 
and um, his um, uh, you know undoubted uh, um, confidence on the capacity of the European uh, spirit, you know, and European wisdom, you know, to overcome crises, to even use crises as challenges in order to find new solutions, and and to uh, perceive always uh, the strong uh, roots uh, that Europe has in terms of its uh, ability and its capacity you know, to recreate mm, the idea of unity, mm, this idea of uh, a pluribus unum, out of the plurality, the unity. Uh, I think that this optimism, which was uh, rooted in a philosophical, you know, analysis of what Europe as civilization means, um, should be um, uh, taken into consideration every day uh, by the European leaders and by European citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you. Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 